The word of God is always awesome. Awesome. Awe-inspiring. And uh, there are times that it particularly takes your breath away. And uh, this portion does. And so I wanted to pause for a minute and just ask the Lord to speak to us and give us clarity as we look into this portion. Lord, we uh, stand in your presence, amazed, Lord God, that you would welcome us and uh, we give you thanks. Give you thanks, Lord God, for your goodness and your mercy towards us, Lord, that while we're yet sinners, you sent your son, Yeshua, to die for us. And Lord God, we pray that the majesty and the glory of who you are, Lord, would grip our hearts today. And uh, we ask this, Lord, in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. Amen. And it's especially crucial for us as we celebrate Simchat Torah because it is not just a parchment. And by the way, if you have not seen the Torah up close, let me encourage you to come and, um, and have a look at it afterwards. Um, and by all means, do not place your greasy uh, appendages all over it. Um, it is to be treated with respect. Um, and that's why we have a pointer, which is called the Yad, which is what is used um, in the reading of the Torah. But we celebrate it because it is such a powerful reminder. It's a visual reminder of the word and the presence of God. Let me just give you a little bit of, of a background where Simchat Torah comes from. As you probably know, it is not one of the explicit festivals that are mentioned in the Torah, particularly in Leviticus chapter 23. However, Israel was commanded by God every seven years on, Suk on Sukkot, the festival of booths, to take time to read the Torah, and that was a form of a covenant renewal between God and the nation of Israel. And over a period of time, especially as Israel came back from exile in Babylon, <clears throat> part of the national spiritual and religious life became the um, gathering together in the synagogue to read from the Torah, which is what we do each Shabbat. And um, part of what we see is that the Torah was used by God to bring about spiritual revival in the nation of Israel. You see that in historical books, whenever the people rediscovered the Torah and, and took it to heart and read it, that profound changes came about in the people. You see that, for example, in... <clears throat> during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, 
And so during the time of Yeshua, the first century, reading of the Torah was something that was common. Not common in the sense of meaning, meaningless, but something that was part of Israel's life. And we see that, for example, in Luke chapter 4, where Yeshua comes to his hometown synagogue and uh, is given the privilege to read not from the Torah but from the prophets, and he does that, and he, and he proclaims who he is to the people. Part of where we are in the Messianic Jewish community is, in a sense, we are between the traditional Jewish community that views the Torah almost uh, as, as a holy uh, uh, icon, and between that and between what we find in the church, uh, in the traditional church, that often sees the Torah as having been fulfilled by Messiah Yeshua, and because of that, not having a great deal to say to those who are followers of Yeshua. That the only thing that those who are believers or Christians need to do is follow what's in the New Testament. And so for us, we seek a balance because we see that the Torah is God's blessing to man. Not just to the nation of Israel, but all of mankind. Because the Torah reveals to us the nature and the holiness of who God is. And sometimes that's hard to see because you see all the, all the elements, all the sacrifices, all the rules and regulations and so on. But if you step back for a minute, realize that about 56 chapters in the Torah, in the Pentateuch, specifically addressed the presence of God the temple, the tabernacle, uh, the sanctuary. 56 chapters which tells you something about where the emphasis is. It's on the fact that God wanted the nation of Israel to get it, that his presence was central. And, and of course, an even larger message was given in the fact that the tents of Israel were, in a sense, parked around God's presence, the tabernacle that dwelt right in the center. You think about the implication, what it says, what it said to Israel, what it says to us, is that the presence of God has to be a central focus in our life. And you think, oh, okay, I get it. Let's move on. No, let's not move on, because that's where we want to park. Because the truth is, life intervenes and so many things come and hit us to where God is squeezed off screen and we are consumed with all sorts of other things that are on screen to where we have a hard time seeing who God is. And we have our wonderful friends from Estes Park, Steve and Allison and Jenny and, uh, and Earl, and... Um, their life has been turned upside down. I'm sure you've been following up on what's been going on in, in the news in Estes Park and in Jamestown and um, 
all these other little mountain towns where it seemed that one day everything was fine. The next day you have major, major disaster and people's lives are, are totally uh, disturbed. And as I have mentioned before, what grabs my attention is the fact that even in the secular media, people understand that this is something more than quote-unquote mother nature. You know, the usual nonsense that is given by um, broadcasters that refer to events that are beyond our understanding. Uh, what has taken place has been described as occurring on biblical proportions. I like that phrase. Because it's simply a reminder that God at some point sees fit to pull back the curtain and reveal who he is and his nature and his character. And that the only thing we can do at that point is step back and be awestruck at the presence of God. This passage gives us a glimpse into eternity past. It's one of these passages that we can try to pick apart and as a graduate of, of the seminary, I've learned how to do that and pick it, pick it apart, all the verbs, the grammar, the history, and so on and so forth. And as I was preparing, what really grabbed my attention is that there's no way that I can get my arms around the truth of this portion of Scripture by my own intellect, my own understanding, my own discernment. That it is such a mystery that I have to step back and say, God, uh, open my eyes. Give me some kind of understanding, some kind of clue what this is about. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, you might think that John had nothing else to do in life but to sit and write profound theology, profound um, letters. Let me just backtrack for a minute and remind you who John was. John is living in an age where there's a great deal of persecution, where emperor worship was considered to be the norm in many parts of the Roman Empire. And John himself, at one point, as he writes one of the other books, the book of Revelation, is hauled off to exile in this little rocky island called Patmos. John is writing to a, a group of people who are persecuted. That's number one issue. Number two is that there's a great deal of heresy and confusion that is taking place. And by the way, this is not something particularly unusual. As we see and if you study the history of great moves of God, you'll realize the fact that every time God rolls up his sleeves and get, gets to work, evil gets in there to try and, and muck things up. As James mentioned earlier, we have this awesome, glorious uh, description of God's creative power, and within a short, short spell, we see that man has become completely and utterly evil. 
we can relate to that. Praise God, we don't live in a country where there is a great deal of persecution. I know sometimes we kvetch and complain um, about how difficult life is for believers, and yes, we do experience significant pushback from the society around us. I think I may have mentioned a couple of times that Joy and I live in an area that's not exactly the buckle of the Bible belt. Um, on one side, of as we come out of our street, there is Planned Parenthood, and then there's the Hippie Shack, and then there is Shotgun Willie, and then there's Fascinations. Um, not exactly well-known houses of worship. By the way, we didn't move there because we were wanting to be real close to Fascinations or the Hippie Shack. We moved there because that is the central focus of the Jewish community in Denver. It's moving out here, by the way. But we felt strong compulsion from God to be right where we are. And so this is part of the pushback we experience when you get up and you go to work, when you, uh, if you're a student, you, you go to school. Society around us is not committed to godliness. I know that's great uh, shock here. So we are not experiencing that same kind of persecution. However, heresy of one kind or another is flourishing today. People get on, on, on the air, they get on the internet, and they pronounce all sorts of bizarre and foolish teachings that really are minimally connected to the Word of God. And like some people, we can be obsessed with all the bizarreness and want to study everything about the bizarreness, or we can do what John does, and that is step back and see God for who he is. Because folks, that is what brings focus and clarity and what, to life and what anchors us in the midst of a confusing and sometimes difficult life. You go back to the beginning. You go back to who God is. And you pause to reflect on how incredible and beyond our understanding he is. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. What does it mean in the beginning? We're clearly talking about something that you and I cannot get our arms around because we're not talking about the beginning of time or the beginning of creation. We're talking about a point in the distant past that you and I can, can never measure because it's part of eternity. And at that point, the word, whatever the word is, we'll talk about that in a minute, the word existed. And Yeshua, in his prayer to the Father, in John 17 says, Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. And like the rest of the passages that speak about who God is, this is indescribable. You and I can sit 
and type into computers and write and draw and do all kinds of things in order to try and get our arms around. And at the end of the day, we back off and say, I have no clue. This is a mystery. It's a mystery. What you find in Scripture, the descriptions of God are always designed to give us little snatches of what it looks like, what he looks like, rather, but they never give us a description of God himself. They, they never say, God looks like this, you know, the face like this and arms like that. They always say to us, he is like this or like that. Uh, same thing we find in the Mount of Transfiguration. When Yeshua was transfigured or changed into, into a glorious form, his face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. Now, if you were to try and sketch that, and I'm no artist, but if you're trying to sketch that, how on earth would you describe that? How on earth would you draw that? You find the same kinds of things in the book of Revelation where it speaks about the presence of God in Revelation 4, and the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, a rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Now, if you're really fortunate and you're wearing one of these rocks on your hands, ladies, but can you imagine something that is as tall as a person, a diamond or a jewel, a jasper? And there are more of those. Again, it is designed to say to us that this is spectacular and that you and I can sit here all day long and all night long and try to use all kinds of language to try and describe how it, it is mind-blowing and beyond our understanding. At the, at the end of the day, you say, I have no clue. It is indescribable. And furthermore, what the Word of God says is that you and I have no business trying to describe God. Because he is beyond our understanding, beyond our limited ability, our, our limited language to convey. We don't have the capacity. Why? Because we are created beings. We are one of, what, six or seven billion human beings? How on earth can we understand the mind of the creator? And so if we endeavor to understand who God is, then we go off into the pit of false mysticism like Kabbalah and other forms of mysticism where people endeavor to try and understand God and describe him. And by the way, there have been all kinds of stories of people in Kabbalah, it, that's Jewish mysticism, who have gone Meshuggi. No great surprise. So if you and I are to grasp who God is, if we are to understand him, he somehow has to pull back the curtains and say, this is who I am. And that's what Revelation is about. The burden of knowing God is not on us, but on him. And so we come, not nervously, but we come in joy and confidence, knowing that God, A, is certainly up to the task of 
revealing himself to us, and B, that he is delighted, absolutely delighted to do that. Now, why do, you, why do I say that God is up to the task of revealing himself to us? Stop and think for a minute. Who wired us? Who knows all our electronic circuits? Who has our email address and our Twitter and our Facebook and our cell phone number? God. And furthermore, the second part of that is that God is eager, very eager to reveal himself. Isaiah 57, 15, this is what the high and lofty one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the, the heart of the contrite. In other words, what God is saying, I'm here, but I'm also here. And that's a great mystery, folks. It's a great mystery that you and I will never understand as long as we are in, in this human, uh, human set of clothes. We will never understand how God, who fills the universe, can also be with us. By the way, Solomon got it. As he stood in the dedication of the temple, he stood up before people and he said, but God, will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. And for us, this is the expectation. Every single, every single Shabbat as we come in, we have the expectation that the master of the universe the one who cannot be contained by the heavens of heavens, who cannot be understood by us, yet at the same time, he chooses, that's his delight, to come and dwell with us and reveal himself to us and pull back the curtains and show us who he is. Folks, I don't know about you, this gives me great freedom because it means that I don't have to try and figure God out. And, and I hope that if you have that 800-pound gorilla on your back, that you ask for help to get him quickly off. Because all God wants is for you to be available and say, God, here I am. Would you please talk to me? doesn't take a nuclear physicist to get that. But of course, it has to be God's way. It has to be done God's way, God's time. And he wants to reveal what he wants to reveal. And sometimes God is narrow-minded and he doesn't seem to want to do things our way. You know, that's a real problem, isn't it? We see an example of that even with Moses. The guy who talked to God face to face. And Moses is going through a hard time. The nation of Israel has just cheated on God with the worship of Baal, uh, the worship of the golden calf. And God is angry. Moses is angry. And Moses is saying to God, God, uh, you gave me an assignment that I don't like. You want me to lead this bunch of renegades to, to this land? So I need help. Show me your glory. In other words, what you really look like. 
And you notice that God's response is to say to him, no, Moses, I am not going to show you my glory. I'm going to show you my goodness. In other words, if I were to show you my glory, you would be nuked. You would be incinerated. All your circuits would be fried. And yes, I will pass before you so you can see little snatches, but what I want to reveal to you, Moses, is just how unbelievably gracious and kind and loving I am at a time when every normal person would want to be done with this rebellious people. You cannot see my face and live, but I want to reveal who I am and my character. By the way, which traditional Judaism, it's called the 13 attributes. Very fascinating, by the way. If you look at the Revelation in Exodus 34, uh, you really have to work hard to come up with 13. But be that as it may, God shows Moses his goodness. And the Lord says to Moses, this is Exodus 33, there is a place near, the, near me, near me, where you may stand on the rock. Again, this is part of the response where God is saying to Moses, I will reveal myself to you in my timing, in my manner, and I will reveal what I feel you need to know at that particular moment. And Lord knows there are times when we need to understand and come to terms with who God is and his character in ways that are different than other times. When we are especially needy and we've gone through tough time and we've been shaken up, we want to know, we want to know God's presence and we want to be comforted and have a clear sense that life is order, that it's not completely mashugi that things are up for grabs and God will do that and so that's been our desire through the Moadim through the festivals is to seek God for a special dose of what we believe we need at this particular point in our history as a congregation we are seeking God to know that he is with us that he is working his plans and that what he has designed for us will actually take place. And I can't speak for anybody else. I sense that that's been the case, that God has been revealing himself to us through the special holiday services, through the Moadim. I've heard that from other people. I certainly have sensed that myself. That somehow in our humble place in our humble means the master of the universe sees fit to come and be present and be real and be active with us so part of what we see here in this portion is that god uses all kinds of means to get our attention We see that, for example, in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 1, he says, the writer of Hebrews states, 
In, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things and through whom he has made the universe. Yes, God talks to people through all kinds of manners. But what we see in Hebrews and particularly here in the book of John is that Yeshua, who has come to earth as God incarnate, is the final and ultimate. And he, John refers here to this word, word. And of course, there's been all kinds of discussion about what that word actually means. Of course, folks, on the Gentile, the Christian side of traditionally have looked at that as referring to John being influenced by Greek philosophy. That the word logos in Greek, which is the word he uses, refers to somehow draws people's attention to Greek philosophy or to the Hellenistic Jewish philosopher named Philo who considered the word or logos to be something between God and man, but not quite God. And I, for one, have a hard time getting my arms around that because I don't see that that is what John is saying. First of all, John is not Greek. His name was Yohanan. God has granted mercy. And he is speaking as someone who is steeped and bathed and immersed in the scripture, in the Tanakh. Where we see that the word of God has dramatic power. For example, in Psalm 33, 6, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, the starry host by the breath of his mouth. When scripture speaks about God working it is not as if he rolls up his sleeves and uh, expends uh, sweat equity to create the world and, and all the stars. He merely sp- speaks a word and things come into being. And we see that this is what we see throughout Scripture is that the word of God is identified with God himself. By the way, in the first century, the rabbis referred to that as the memra, an Aramaic word which described the, the word and the presence of God existing way before creation. In other words, this word that John speaks about, the memra, existed way before creation. And obviously here he says that this word was God. He was in the beginning with God and he is God. Part of what is encouraging to me is that God who is so mysterious, so above us, so beyond us, so unbelievable, so indescribable, at the same time, we see that God puts on a pair of shoes and he comes down to earth. Again, that's all part of God's desire to reveal himself to man. 
because of his care and his love for his creation. We see that in, here in John 1.14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came down from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Greek word is roughly equivalent to a Hebrew word, shachan, from which we get, of course, the mishkan, which is the tabernacle. In other words, this word, this uh, being that existed with the Father from eternity past, somehow puts on a pair of shoes and comes down and lives with us. And it's important for us to realize Another mystery, another one of these mind-blowing truths of the Word of God that we often see in the Tanakh when God takes on a human form and appears temporarily. So, for instance, we see that Abraham comes and he sits down and uh, he's sitting down at, at, at the tent and three guests come to visit him. And uh, Abraham serves them a meal and they eat. Two of them go down to Sodom and one of them sticks around and has this long, intense Jewish conversation with Abraham. And Abraham refers to him as God. Now go figure that one out. God puts on human form and comes down and eats. The same thing we see with Jacob wrestling with this angel and then he refers to this place where he was wrestling as Peniel, the place of God. And we see a number of those kinds of appearances. Almost, uh, it's hard for us to describe unless you were uh, a good science fiction writer. And since I'm a Trekkie and not a writer, but um, all kinds of imagery come to mind. But the point we have to remember, folks, is that Yeshua didn't just take on the human form and just kind of flew away. And by the way, that's part of the, the heresy that developed in the first century and is still around today. But we see that Yeshua somehow is God and man today. There's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Yeshua, the Messiah. Now go explain that to me. Because we understand the picture, here on earth you have a bunch of humans. Up in heaven you have God and angels. How do you explain the presence of a human who is also God up there? And at some point you say, okay, I understand this much, and then this much I certainly do not understand. And God sees fit to open my eyes and give me enough understanding of his mysteries, not so that I sit and cogitate and philosophize and send emails to all my clever friends, but rather that I do what he tells me to do. God reveals enough information so that we get on the ball and do what he tells us to do. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to God, but those that are revealed, he had revealed to us so that we may follow and obey. 
And part of the mystery here is that this word, this, this mysterious word God had to become human according to the book of Hebrews that he had to share our humanity. He had to be made like brothers, like his brothers in every way that he might become a merciful and a faithful high priest. In other words, Yeshua is alive and well. You sure? And he is actively engaged on our behalf. And the reason why he can do that and why we can come to God and approach him in confidence is that the word became flesh and tabernacled and joined our sukkah, our tabernacle. And because of that, we have confidence of God's presence. Which, by the way, he's always wanted to do from day one. From the moment Adam broke God's heart by sinning, God has been irrevocably and irresistibly at work to bring about that, that change, that, that transformation, that redemption. Because he wants to dwell with us. And again, what that says to us is not that you and I have to try to work harder and harder and harder, but we have to understand more and more and more how God is working. Because his plan, which is going to be fulfilled, it will be fulfilled. We know the end of the book. It will be fulfilled. And the presence, the limited amount, the limited measure that we can experience of God's presence today, as good as it is, there'll be a time when we will be ushered, we will be drawn into complete fullness. Let me read to you a couple of statements here. This is in Revelation 21. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and he would live with them. They would be his people and God himself will be with them and he will be their God. Also in the same chapter, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. Why? Because the glory of God gives it light. Then in chapter 22, the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face. They will see his face. In other words, full bore revelation of who God is without any limitations. Can you get your arms around that? I, I don't know that I can. Remember that the temple, the tabernacle, had two functions. It was both designed to be a place where God's presence dwelt, but it was also designed to separate God from people. And we still have some of that today because of our sin. Yes, we are encouraged to come boldly 
before the throne of grace. But there are things about us that make things difficult for a complete face-to-face interchange and, and reality, a communication with God. But all of that will be swept away. All of that will be swept away. In the meantime, what we do see, folks, is simply that as God's people are committed to welcoming his presence, he will come. He will come. He will come. And the more we seek, the more we desire to be in his presence, the more he will come, folks. He delights in hanging out with us. And it is a mystery. It is a mystery, folks. It is a mystery that as we desire to know God, as we desire to seek him, as we desire to serve him, as we desire to focus on him more and more, as we desire to have our screen filled with him, not with us, then he will come. He will come. He will come and increasingly become part of our life. And you say, okay, you know, I have worked, I I live in a real world, quote unquote, but let me tell you something. Almighty God wants to walk with you from the moment you get up in the morning till the time you go to bed at night. And he welcomes you to walk in the light of his presence. In other words, that you consciously, deliberately ask God to be part of your life on an ongoing daily basis. And you invite him in some degree of faith. It doesn't have to be huge, gigantic faith. Some degree of faith. You welcome God to come into all the places where you, where you are. Especially the difficult places. You know, when, when you work for d- difficult bosses or you have absolutely obnoxious fellow workers or you have difficult family relations that you want to scream and, and tear your hair out. In my case, it's not much of a problem since I don't have much hair. That's where you invite the presence of God to come. Not just in the so-called spiritual realm of things on Shabbat morning or other times when you come and you are committed to worshiping God. But that your whole life, that your whole life would have that goal and that objective and that desire to see more and more and more and more of the presence of God, the living word, the living Torah of God displayed in you, written deeply in your, upon your DNA and then being expressed in how you relate to other people. Let's pray. Lord God, we stand before you, Lord. Sinners, 
often defiled by this society, often defiled, Lord God, by our own unclean inclinations, Lord. We bless you, Lord God, that you who dwell in a high and lofty place in our eternal, that you choose to dwell with us who are contrite in heart and humble in spirit. Lord God, that's our desire. That's our desire, Lord, is to have more and more and more of you in our life, to learn to worship you, Lord God, to seek you more fully and to follow in the ways that you lay out for us. Lord God, we ask simply that you come and that your presence will dominate our life. Lord God, that we would decrease and that you would increase. That our screens, Lord God, would be increasingly filled with you, the reality of who you are, Lord, and your goodness. Give us, Lord God, as you did to Moses, a greater understanding of your goodness so that we can respond, Lord God, wholeheartedly because it is your goodness that leads to repentance. Lord, we pray on this season of Simchat Torah, Lord, as we wind down the Moadim, the special festivals, we pray, Lord God, that our hearts, Lord, would not, our hearts' passion for you, Lord, would not wane, but that they would increase. And that we would look back, Lord God, and see these times as times as milestones in our life where you met with us, Lord God, and you changed us and you transformed us and you set us, Lord God, towards your course. Come have your way with us, we pray, Lord, in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. Amen.